Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you the April 2022 talk from the Whitechapel Society. Lauren Davis, The Medieval Jewry in the East End. The audio recording starts off with significant problems, so what I'll do is read to you the introduction Tony Powers gave to Lauren's talk, and then for the first four minutes you'll hear Lauren's talk suffering from those audio problems. But after four minutes it improves considerably, so bear with the bad sound at the beginning, and it's smoother sailing from there on out. Tonight we welcome Lauren Davis. Lauren is studying for her master's degree in medieval studies at Swansea University. And in addition to that, she's also writing an exploration of the experience of Queen's Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard in the legal system of King Henry VIII. The book will be called Treason of Queens, The Experiences of Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, and it is due to be published in 2025. Now, for all of us who study the history of London's East End, we are really aware that the Jewish immigrant community of Whitechapel and Spitalfields featured extensively in the Jack the Ripper story, with many of the locals convinced that the murderer belonged to this community. So they had a huge impact on the area, and this impact can still be seen in many surviving buildings that they created. For example, the Sandy Row Synagogue, built in 1766 the Fieldgate Street Synagogue, founded in 1899. And if you go to Brune Street, which is close to Liverpool Street Station, you'll find the elegant exterior for a building which is labeled Soup Kitchen for the Jewish Poor, which was built in 1902. And in Princelet Street, between numbers 6 and 10, which is just off of Brick Lane, you can find the Yiddish Theater, where the great Jewish actor Jacob Adler played to packed houses. But the history of the Jewish community in the East End goes back a lot longer than that. And tonight, Lauren is going to look at the relationship of London's Jewry from 1066 to the year of expulsion in 1290. And she'll also examine the relationship between the Tower of London and the East End Jewish community. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Lauren Davis. Um, thank you for having me speak for them tonight. It's such an honor to um, be standing in front of the White Chapter Society after doing two seminar meetings back when we were in the Chamberlain. So the, Jewish, the medieval Jewish history is something that I learned while I was studying for my master's, and it was something that was new to me. I wasn't quite sure what it meant, and I wasn't quite sure what it meant for England. The reason that you hear me talking about English Jewries um, rather than Welsh, Scottish, or Irish is that there is no evidence that there were ever Jews in Wales, Ireland or Scotland during the medieval period. There are some references to a family in Carleon um, in Wales on the March of Broadlands, but all we have is the name that they were of Jewish descent and that could that doesn't tell us enough to definitely say that they were Jewish. They could have been um, they could have been converse, converted Jews that came to live in Wales, but there doesn't seem to be any Jewish population at all in Wales or Scotland at that time. Um, so another fascinating aspect of this history that I found as well is that um, the, the issue of blood libels and throughout the medieval period 
of Russia in the 1270s and mostly in the 13th century there were the issue of blood libels as you will see and this is a very interesting part of the history of the jury during the medieval period and if you enjoy my talk tonight I'll be happy to come back and talk more in depth about those for you. So this first um, slide will give you the overview of the history of the Jews from 1077 when we first have the first, when we have first documented evidence of the Jewry in England. So in 1090 we have a disposition of a Jew uh, between a Jew and a Christian, and this is something that was um, that was. Um, quite common in that to learn more about the Jews, uh, men of Christian faith and um, especially those in the clergy would discuss theology uh, with the Jews to learn more about them and during the first part of their life in England that was the big thing is that they were seen as God's chosen people. As the Crusades came in and opinions changed um, in Europe and they were, uh, they, uh, were subject to pogroms in other places in Europe. That changed in England too, and we see that as the, as the period goes on, we see that there is more limitations on the freedoms of the Jews. That's okay. So as you can see, the first documented a mention of Jews is in 1077. Then in 1090, we have this piece of literature. Oh, sorry, wrong way. This piece of literature, which is a disposition of a Jew between a Christian. And as you read through it, you can see that he notes that the Jew is a worthy adversary, well, not adversary, but someone that he can de debate the scriptures with, and that the knowledge of the Jew is equal to his own. And that was important because there was a certain um, aspect of trying to accept them. But then again, as time went on and um, and things progressed and different kings came into power, you notice that there are certain restrictions put on the relationships that Christians can have with Jews. At one point, Jews weren't allowed to even converse with a Jew and he would be um, fined heavily or imprisoned for that. And that is a great diversion from what they came to England to be. They were invited to England by William the Conqueror because he wasn't able to have he wasn't able to loan money from his Christian subjects because it was against the religious laws for Christians to borrow and lend money. So that's why he needed this source of income. So it was the Jews of Normandy, who they themselves came from the Ashkenazi region, that came to England with William the Conqueror. And they financed a lot of the buildings that he first made, including the Tower of London, that was heavily financed with Jewish money. As we can see um, later on in the in the 12th century, the Jews were granted certain liberties around London, and that excused them from um, from having to pay certain tolls. So as they moved around the country, they were freer than other people, and this is where you can see some of the resentment come in, because in being granted certain liberties, their status as you move on to the laws of Edward the Confessor outline their position as property of the king. And that's the thing we've got to remember, is that yes, the king granted them freedom, and the, and the king granted them protection, but they paid a price for that, and that was they were considered property. And the king could do with, him, with them what he wanted. And as we move to the reign of Edward II, you see that it falls into heavy taxation. It falls into the part where he removes their ability to do the only trade that they know how to do, which is usury. And that's our fault. That's 
the reason that that's the only trade they knew how to do is because we cast them in that light. We put them in that position where all they could do was to lend and borrow money. So as you can see from the timeline, we see the pressures to convert and the blood libels in 1275 Old Jewry Street. The synagogue there was closed down. And so they had nowhere to worship pretty much in the East End of London. So we have all these things that are going on. And it seems to be coming from the top down, because as you can see, that in the 1260s you have the conflict with the barons, and that predominantly relates to de Montfort, Simon de Montfort, who, when he, won a, when he took power away from Henry III, you had all these massacres happening, and especially one in London on Palm Sunday. As that carried on during the reign of Edward II, we see that there was taxation as well. And as Simon de Montfort previously took power um, in 1260, there was a massacre in London of the Jews where they're described as all being killed and having their items stolen, and um, the majority of those that were stripped were stripped naked. Unfortunately, we don't because there was such confusion about what was going on. There wasn't the ability to arrests anybody in, term, in conjunction with that. And that's what we see through the massacres, is that there is nothing that they can do. There is nothing that the, the, those that are protecting the Jews can do, because it's so many people prosecuting and um, harming them. So the statute of the jury in 1253, again, is when you're given certain places to live. And those places are that they can't reside anywhere where there isn't an Arca and as you go as we'll go on we'll discuss more about the Arca then. But here we are here's a copy of the manuscript of the Laws of the Edward Confessor. So they weren't written in the time of Edward the Confessor, they were written later. And this is just to signify that they are returning to the proper law of England and that they are protecting the the legal standing of not just the jury in England but every everybody else as well. So they are sort of a precursor to Magna Carta, but just before that. So this is the Charter of Liberties. As you can see, it's more than one document or membrane stitched together. You can see at the bottom they'd have stitched it together. And this is what would have granted the liberties to the jewellery to move around England and to be free of tolls. And as you can see, so this is right at the beginning of the 13th century when things were still going good and the relationship was good. And that's what we need to remember. At the height of the jury being in England, there was only 3,000 of them. And in one point during a mass um, arrest of Jews for coin clipping on charges 1289, 600 Jews were arrested and 300 were hanged. So if you consider that the entire number at their peak was 3,000, that is a considerable amount of Jews. And like I said earlier, they were only allowed to reside in certain places. So you see, if you're discussing medieval Jews, you'll see there were centres of, centers of juries in uh, London, in York, in Winchester, Bristol. And that is because they had the Arca there. And the Arca was the only way that they could do business. So we also have stereotypes that appeared in this, in this era as well. So we see a lot of them being repeated throughout history. And the bloodthirsty and uh, capable of killing innocent Christian children was to do with the blood libels. And what that meant is that they believed that um, the Jews were able to 
kill children for their blood to make leavened bread during their during their holidays. And as I mentioned earlier, that um, there are a lot of issues. Um, with a violence towards Jews on Christian holidays as well, and Palm Sunday would be a big one. The passion was um, immensely important to people of the medieval period, and to the suffering of Christ. If you were to read anything written by Marjorie Kemp or Julian of Norwich, the passion imagery is very strong. So the passion of Christ and Easter was a high holiday. So if there was going to be any violence, you know, the feeling around the killing of Christ, you know, by the people that they can see coming into their country, profiting off their unfor- you know, unfortunate circumstances by having to lend them money and having to lend money from them is, is something that you can see, which is really unfair. So in the first image on the title slide, you saw them wearing pointed hats, and that was something that they were made to do, along with tabular badges. So the badges were often yellow in color, and there was a certain uh, regulation to their length. Um, they had to be six inches by three inches, and they were to be worn by any Jew of the age of seven. And it would be worn on the outer clothing so that people would know that you were a Jew, and so that they could avoid you, because it was against the law for them to speak to you. So what we see now is a series of legal documents on parchment where the scribes have drawn images of the Jews on them. And as you can see, um, it is—it looks like a jester. It's quite unflattering. It's got a hooked nose, and it, it looks quite ugly. And what is rather infuriating about this is that this would be uh, to do with the debt to the exchequer of the Jews, which was the highest court uh, in England that could deal with Jews, because they only had one court, and that was called the exchequer of the Jews. So they would go through the normal legal system, so they would meet with the justices in air, and they would go through the normal court process, but ultimately they would end up in Westminster, and that's another reason why they were granted the freedom of London. They needed to do so, because within London there were so many centres of business here in the East End and in Westminster as well. So this is from a tallage roll, which is a tax roll from Norwich, which was another centre for Jews. And there is a very good BBC documentary on YouTube that you can watch about some archaeological digs that were done in the centre of Norwich a few years ago, where they found the body of Jews uh, pushed down a well. They have no idea where these people came from, but through analysis of the skeletal remains, they have found out that they were from the Ashkenazi region and were of Jews descent. Um, unfortunately, we don't know more about them, and, we, and that's the greatest tragedy of this, is that to learn about what life was like for the East End Jews, we have to look at the Jewry all around England, because that's the only way we know what it was like for them, because what we see is that the experience was pretty much the same around each place that you went. So as you can see here, Moses is the one with a pointy hat, and he's having his nose tweaked by the devil. And that's another thing. Again, because the, their association with uh, the deception and, of Christ and leading him to be crucified, they were heavily aligned with the devil. And you can see here devils in the background as well, marching away. So again, this is quite annoying because you wouldn't see this on legal documents today. And this, you know, it, 
the scribes had a lot of time on their hands quite clearly because when they were doing this document. So it's quite, it's quite interesting as well. These documents can provide a great social impact, a great social information for you on the period as well, where other items may not survive or where you only have archaeological remains. We also have this image as well. And this is probably one of the most troublesome Jesus, and that was Aaron of Lincoln. And this is, this wasn't even to do with him. This wasn't his court case. But he was so hated by the establishment that in a court case where his son is being accused of deer wrestling in Essex, he, he is being um, uh, portrayed here. And you can see the inscriptions at the bottom say that he is Aaron's son of the devil. You can also see the hook nose again and the tablet of badge, which is a quite a shame to see that even you know nearly a thousand years ago that the same stereotypes that we remain today were still being um, seen and still being shown. So the Arca system was finally established in 1194, so just a hundred years or just under a hundred years before they were finally um, asked to leave the country. You could only do business where there was official Jewish settlement, which is like I said, Norwich, London, Winchester, or Bristol. The reason that they had to live near a residence of the king was then that they had the official protection of the king, and if there were any disputes, then the king himself or officials of the king could then sort of sort it out for them. The Arca system was was quite troublesome because, as you can see, the kyriographers were made were made of two Jew, Christian men and two Jewish men, and each held one of the four keys to the Arca. And this is quite a struggle. You do see a struggle here because how could the Jewish men trust that the Christian men would do the right thing? And then again, you would have the Christian men leading sometimes with their prejudice. So it's a very flawed and troubled system. So like I said the, uh, before, the exchequer of the Jews sat at the top of the Arca system and was the final stop for any legal issue. So just affect the reading of usury. When the debt was finally paid, you would bring all the parts of the agreement back together and they would be locked up in the box. This would also um, attest to any legal matters. So that would, going back to the example of Aaron and his son, their, their trial would eventually have got to the exchequer of the Jews where the sentence was passed. So um, you do see that um, while they, while you may think that the Arca system restricted them legally, it did free them up in a bit. They did free them up in a way because they had the opportunity to directly go to the king, where many people didn't. You'd only have the highest, higher parts of society that would be able to go to the king. So again, you can sort of see the resentments creeping in because of this special relationship that it was seen to be had with them. But again, it wasn't that special, and especially in the 1270s, when you have Edward taxing them so much so he could go and fight in Wales, it does lead to uh, quite, quite the ruination of a lot of Jewish families as well. So the East End Jewry were close to the tower because that was a principal palace of the king. And I'm not quite sure if that's where the Arca was, but during the scrutinies which took place after they left 
after they were made to leave England, they, the, a lot of that was taken away to the Tower of London to be looked after and to be gone through. So Constable of the Tower had the responsibility for the well-being and protection of Jews. And we know that because uh, we have certain items that relate to the fact that he collected the tolls as they were coming into the city of London. He was the only person that was allowed to arrest Jews and Jews that were arrested, uh, well, he's the only person allowed to arrest Jews in London. But if a Jew was arrested in another town, they were usually sent to the Tower of London, which made sense because the other prisons of the area wouldn't want the trouble of trying to keep a Jewish prisoner separate because Christians and Jews were not allowed to mix. And you wouldn't have... Uh, and again, they would themselves be... Uh, they themselves would be under pressure to look after that prisoner, whereas the constable of the tower, that was his job anyway. So if he could do, if that was his day-to-day -day business. So that number there is wrong. 600 Jews were not hanged at the tower in 1278. What happened was, is that 600 Jews were arrested on coin clipping charges, which was at that point the only, was the biggest form of treason. Later on, you know, when we get to Henry VIII, you have, you have um, it gets inflated and bloated. But up until that point, up until the Reformation, the main um, issue of treason was coin clipping, was defacing the coinage, which had the image of the king on it. So though this, those 600 Jews were arrested, in 1279, a year later, 300 of those Jews were hanged. So like I said before, this is evidence that we have about the, the Jewish history of the Tower of London. And this is the role of the Constable of the Tower collecting the tolls from the Jews as they were leaving London uh, after the Edict of Expulsion. So uh, it was for D a Jew, and then for the poorer, Jew, uh, poorer Jews, it was 2D. So not only were they kicked out of their home through an edict of expulsion, not having much time to pack up all their belongings, but they were also charged for the pleasure as well. So Jernet, son of Abraham, was a sergeant of the Tower of London, and he's the only documented, mem fully Jewish member of the, uh, as acting as sergeant of the Tower. He would have been a trusted figure. He would have stood bail. He would have been called to witness or stand assurance for bail as well. So when you were during the medieval period, it wouldn't always be financial money. It wouldn't be money that you would give for bail. It would be assurances of good character and good faith. You know, the the law was still emerging and moving away from the more from the more um, religious aspects of it. Because before William the Conqueror came to came to England, the biggest form of court was the church court. And as he started to build prisons, we then see a more uh, we see a prison system and a legal system that is also being led with the king. So for a while, you have two forms of court: you have the church court and the um, and the king's court, which does sort of um, create issues when you get to things like money lending. So if you had lent money from a Jew you weren't able to take up your case in the church court where you would have been more likely to have won based on the religious views of the based on the religious views that were held about the Jews you'd have to take it to the king's court at the exchequer of the Jews and then it would be up to the king and the Jews though they were small in number with 3000 at the highest peak they did perform a financial 
a substantial financial function in this country by providing the king with money. He was also able to charge them whatever he wanted in tax. He could think of a tax to tax them and it would be there. During the statute of the jury, um, he, all Jews of the age of 12 had to pay a special tax of three pence annually. So regardless of whether they were still in school or whether they were poor, each Jew of the age of 12 had to pay that tax. And that tax was used at the discrimination of the king, however way he wanted it. There was no, it was paid directly to him. So with Jernit as well, we see that he, his role as well was to bring bodies into the city of London of Jews, and he was attacked for doing this. Um, a baron of Southwark did challenge him once about why he was bringing a body of a Jew in um, to the city and was uh, asking him for the toll. As we learned earlier, the freedoms, in to uh, the freedoms that were granted to them in 1201 meant that they didn't have to pay this toll. And so he was beaten up. This was taken to the exchequer of the Jews and then the, ba the uh, bailiff and his men were arrested because, of course, everything was found in Jernet's favour. But Jernet himself as well w was quite problematic because he did end up in prison for uh, debt himself. So uh, in, the tw in the 1280s, we see evidence of him being put, uh, put in prison for owing the king money um, because the Jews were able to sell on their loans. Uh, but if they sold on their loan, they had to pay a portion of that sale to the king because their loans and their, the debts that they owned also belonged to the king, and the king profited from them as well. So again, the way that the Arca would work, you'd get a three-part agreement. The top bit would go into the Arca, which was sealed and locked and belonged to the king. Then you'd have a debtor. You'd have the person owing the money would have one part, and then the final part would be with the Jew. They would all see the, say the same thing, but it was to protect the interest of the king in having the money of the Jews uh, protected as well. So the biggest question is, what was daily life like? And unfortunately, that is very difficult to say. We know that they lived in, sorry, EC20 was the postcode. So that was out by the Barbican. We know that there was, uh, there was where the Barbican is now was the only graveyard, a Jewish graveyard. Um, there were others licensed later on in York and Winchester. So um, at the time where we see Jernet uh, bringing the body in, the, uh, the body was being brought in be possibly because that was the only place where you could bury a Jew um, in England. It would have also had a, a synagogue, and that synagogue would have been on Great Jewry Street. So where the old Jewry was, that's where it was. And that was closed in 1275. Now, during the period of when the... During the Statute of the Jewry, uh, we also see that there was a change in the way that the Jews were allowed to live their daily life and they were they were supposed to stop being they were usury was stopped and they had to form other jobs such as merchants or farmers and they were allowed to take land up for 15 years now that does seem suspicious that they were only allowed to take up this rental for 15 years considering that the edict of expulsion was in 1290 but I think that was more to do with the fact that that's when the next scrutiny would be. They would see how things would go, and then they would change it, would uh, see how it went in 15 years' time. The reason that they were expelled and the reason that is given is that 
Edward found out that usury was still going on in England and it hadn't stopped. That's because they had taken up doing things like pawn shops and, and that had gone into where the clergy had started using them and they'd started off sell, sort of using guilt items and items of worship as a surety for money in terms, in, in terms of capital so that they could get loans to do things for churches. So it was very problematic by taking that away. I mean, you're not going to get somebody who's been a, a moneylender all their life to start being a farmer. That's just impossible. And it was, we did start to see a struggle of what was going on there. So while with daily life, we do have things coming out in archaeology. As the new train lines are being laid, we are finding out more about the provincial juries and we are finding out more about their way of life. But the thing to remember is that the way of life for the East End Jews was similar to the every Jew that was in the country. They all had a common link and they all had a common experience, which is quite sad. So, um, the last slide that I have is of the archival resource for the Jews in the city of London. And that is a fantastic resource because it goes into depth into the legal issues that were happening in the tower. So you do see um, so sometimes you do see the cases that were taken to the Tower of London where people were where they owed money or where they were taken to money on or they were taken into the tower on accusations of assault and issues against Christians. And you see that it was quite a fractured um, existence and that it was quite a troublesome one as well. And that's the big, uh, big pity of it all, is that the majority of the information that you have on the jury and during this period is from the perspective of legal documents. And that is one of the saddest things. I understand that it might be disappointing that there was not much of a focus on the directly on the East End jury. And, well, that's because we don't know very much about them other than what their experiences with the legal system. We don't know... We don't know much about the Jews of England very much anyway, except what we know about them from the legal system and what we know about them in the blood libels and from what happened to them. You know, the, the, there was a massacre in London and there was a massacre in York. In, you know, the massacre in York, we, there were reports of ritual suicide, that they were so terrified of being captured by the Christians that they themselves decided to commit suicide rather than be captured. And, you know, the idea that in London that you would have such violence where the Jews would be chased, they'd be stripped naked and then murdered in their beds is quite horrific. That came from the changing opinions of the church. And they went from being the misguided chosen people of God to being the villain. And again, that was partly because of what was happening in the Crusades. You had a succession of kings going to the Crusades and seeing what was happening to the Jews in the Holy Land. And the fact that they believed that there was some sort of conspiracy where there was a council of Jews that would every year decide in which country a Christian child would die to fulfill the prophecy of... It was if they sacrificed or crucified a Christian child in that country, they were one step closer getting back to the Holy Land. So you have monstrous accusations laid at their door. And it is really sad to see... I hope you've enjoyed my talk, and if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer. Sorry. <laughs> 
what we'll do is, I'm, I'm aware that we have a couple of people online who have some questions, which is great. So I'm going to go to Zoom, and then we'll come back into the room and see whether anybody has questions here in the room. Um, but so you mentioned there was a couple of people that had a question. So if you'd like to maybe get them to unmute themselves, and we can hear them. Sure. Lee, would you, would you like to go first? Thank you. It was mentioned that uh, the Jews were the only people who were able to lend money uh, to you to usury it was the term uh, and obviously when the Jews were deported or banished in was it 1290 were Christians able to develop a, a usury were they able to loan or or, or did the, the financial system really miss the Jews because of the services that they were able to offer that Christians weren't they did miss the Jews, but they also found Italian merchants as well. So it changed where the church sort of took over that role. Because again, they saw how lucrative it was. So you've had merchants from elsewhere coming into the country. And it was again during the Republic when um, Cromwell invited the Jews back. Part of the reason was down to the financial, for the financial offerings that they could offer. So I think that was, 1655 was the resettlement of the Jews, which was sort of the uh, verbal agreement of the return of the Jews. And that was then shrouded in law in 1753. So yes, they did miss it. And it was one of the reasons they were invited back. And, but then we found uh, merchants in other countries that were able to do the job as well. Thank you. You're welcome. Lauren, I thought that was absolutely excellent. Thank you very, very much. Um, and and there's, you've got some nice uh, comments here in, in the chat box. Could I ask, if, if we sort of fast forward in time, was there any one moment, would you say, in time where uh, the, 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 the lot of the individual Jew um, improved in this country? When, was, there, was there one sort of defining moment where people's attitude towards Jews kind of changed or, or did it evolve? It was an evolution because when they first came, they were guests of William the Conqueror. They were bought for a purpose. They were respected. Um, the laws that happened in 1201, they did sort of uh, move to add respect to their position as guests of the king. And that was something that continued until you had the statute of the jury, which then sort of made them lesser um, people. And it was, again, it was the progression of the ideas that uh, when you had a change in Pope, you went from having them as being the misunderstood, you know, the misguided chosen people of God to being the infidels and to being the killers of Christ. So that is something that happens not just in England, but the jury in England are, sh are protected from it um, a lot, for a lot longer than the Jews in the rest of Europe. And again, that's, I would say that's down to uh, Britain and England's position as an island and that we were separated from the rest of Europe and those ideas took longer to get to us. But it, it was the Crusades that really changed the way that people saw it. Um, but it was... Uh, it was, yeah, it was definitely clergy and uh, led by the barons as well. And some of those had been on crusade and some of those resented the position that the Jews had with the king because um, they thought that they were being treated better than the, than the regular subjects, which isn't true because the king could um, ask, them for, ask them for money and they'd have to give it. 
because, again, they were bound to the king in such a way. It was sort of like an exaggerated version of tenorial sergeants, which were people that were bound to the king to do a duty. And the duty, duty of the Jews was to provide the king with a source of income. But then they got to make money by lending money to other people as well. And it wasn't just uh, lay people. It was members of the clergy as well. And you have churches where um, spires are uh, built with money that has come from Jewish money. Can I ask sort of where your own interest in this started? It was when I saw the course prospectus for the Masters, it was then. It's something that I've not really thought about, really. I didn't really think that there was Jews in England before the, the 18th century. So to find out that there was this much earlier settlement was something that was fascinating to me. And again, it um, adds, a, adds a dimension to the discussion of the Middle Ages that you don't quite get, which is the aspect of race. You don't really think of um, the medieval period as having this, this racial dimension where they could recognize different races and acknowledge them. And you have this open discourse of you know, anti-Semitism. Thank you very much, Lauren. That, that, was, that was excellent. Thank you. Great. Thanks for those questions, Sue. Obviously, if there are any other questions online, please do put them in the chat uh, and we'll, we will pick those up. I guess I just want to see whether there's any questions from the floor here. Sarah, well done. There we go. My question is whether the Royal Mint was in the Tower of London in the medieval period. Yes. And whether that had any um, influence on business relationships with the Jews or the way the Jews were treated if they were kind of managed out of the Tower of London? Um, I'm not quite sure how, they were, how the Mint and the relationship with the Jews would uh, work. That's something I'd have to look in a bit more. But it would have worked from the Tower of London. And the reason that they were in this area was because there were so many centres of businesses in the East End. You had the Guild, Guild Hall, so they were close to the Guild Hall. And that's probably where the Arca was for this part of... London as well but then you know also again it, it's so far out of Westminster because um, during the coronation of Richard the Lionheart you have the deposit the the Jewish contingent that went to that were attacked so if they did move more into central London there was this there was you couldn't guarantee their safety and again you would expect to find them there because there were palaces of the king there too so it's quite strange that they were by the tower, but then again, you know, it was the fortification where kings went when the country was supposedly under attack or there was a threat to the country. So you can see that it was there for their safety as well. The thing that's striking for me is, and, and shocking for me, is the pers historical persecution of, of the Jewish people and Jewish community. You've got not allowed to mix, segregated, we've got caricatured in print, and obviously for, for us who have an interest in the Whitechapel murders of 1888, you've got the Goulson Street graffiti, yes. which mentioned the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. So it seems like there's a historical narrative here, um, but maybe started. Um, medieval period? It wasn't just in England, it was elsewhere. Like These blood libels were thought to have happened anywhere in the world. Because like that, like it was William of Monmouth that came up with this conspiracy theory that the, the, of the Council of Jews that would decide the country where the blood libel would happen that year. Um, so yes, and it would be young children, young Christian children, and uh, it was boys as well, that they, uh, they, and there were boys that were murdered. And because there was no explanation to the murder, like William of Norwich, that was blamed on Jews. 
and usually the, um, the, the method of murdering was a crucifixion because, again, you know, they crucified Christ, they're crucifying young Christian children as well. So it was, it was you know, it was, they were being blamed for the unexplained, which, again, you can see happening in 1888 as well. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, they were... And I can understand why there would be, why there would be confusion and sort of jealousy over the relationship that they had with the monarch because they were brought here specifically by the monarch to help him establish the new country, which kind of would have thought, you know, displaced a few people and did cause, tr you know, cause trouble with the barons, especially Simon de Montfort, who had a special hatred for the Jews. Terrific. Yeah, Mark, go ahead, Mark. Just out of interest, so was the first recorded pogrom in, in England... Um, no, that, that was in elsewhere in Europe. I'm not quite sure where. But they seem to happen... They seem to be worse in England because the, of the fact that there weren't Jews living everywhere in England. They were confined to these communities. Um, yeah, because I, I saw that documentary you were talking about yeah. where it was a whole family, wasn't it? Thrown, was, thrown yes. down a well in, I think, York, wasn't it? Or in Norwich. Norwich, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that would be something that would happen. Um, usually, uh, they would be burnt. I think they were burnt in their sleep. Oh, and then they were thrown down the well. terrible. But they weren't quite able to sort of put the timeline together because you have less than 200 years of these people arriving here en masse and then leaving en masse. And then everything was sort of just left and demolished. And now, you know, you, you only find out a little bit more about them when you're doing um, archaeological archaeological exploration. Yeah. And that's the thing. The history of the Jews is archaeologically led in this mm. country, especially yeah. for that period. So, which is kind of strange because it's normally historically led, and then the archaeology works from the history. But the, you know, so it is. It is sort of opening it up to a new discipline, showing us uh, that it can do things that we didn't think possible, and you know, that you don't have to rely on historiography right. all the time. That you can sort of learn by seeing what what, what was unfolding behind you. Yeah. yeah. But because I know that they have found skeletons, and they have found that they had better teeth than the English because they follow, you know, because of their diets and everything. And we have been able to learn a bit more about um, what they ate and how they lived through the bones. But to have an overview of everyday life, what they did from getting up in the morning to going to bed other than praying and going to the synagogue is, isn't something that we can do. I'd like to thank everybody for the questions, some really good questions. And Lauren, I want to thank you for your full answers, terrific thank answers. You. Thank you. Um, so a round of applause, everybody. Lauren Davis. And that was Lauren Davis on the medieval jewelry in the East End. I'd like to thank Lauren, Tony Powers, Steve Ratty, and the entire committee of the Whitechapel Society for continuing to make their meetings available to Rivercast. And if you would like more information about the Whitechapel Society, please visit their website, whitechapelsociety.com, where you'll learn how to become a member, see a list of upcoming speakers, purchase books, and subscribe to the Whitechapel Society Journal. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 200 conference talks, roundtable discussions, limited-run serials, author interviews, archive recordings, and book reviews, all about Jack the Ripper, East End history, and Victorian and Edwardian crime. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.